lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Well, this is our official Christmas episode, and I'm replaying an interview that I did with Shelley Cram, the author of The Gardener's Bible, back on November 25th. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that episode, this is a repeat, a bonus of that interview. And I hope that you will enjoy it. I thought it was the perfect content for a Christmas show. You know, I usually start the show out by welcoming members to our Facebook group, which is the listener community for the show. And today, since I'm recording this in advance, I won't do that. But I'd still love to invite you to join the group It's the Still Growing Podcast group on Facebook, and it is the listener community for this podcast. So if you'd like to join the group, all you need to do is go to Facebook and then search Still Growing Podcast group in the search bar, and then our group will show right up. It will look like it's a closed group, and all you have to do is request to join, and then once I verify that you're not a robot or a spammer, I'll let you in the group. And it's a great place to interact with other listeners of the show. There are guests of the show that have already been on the show that are there that will be happy to answer questions or interact with you. That's been a super fun feature of the show, and I'm so glad that I added it. And also, it's a great chance for me to get to interact with listeners of the show. You know, without the Facebook group, this would be a very one-way conversation. But thanks to the Facebook group, I get to have more direct connections with listeners of the show. And it's been probably one of the biggest gifts I've given myself as a podcaster to start that Facebook group. It's also the place where I go to select winners for my giveaways from my sponsors and guests of my show. So if you'd like to win any of the giveaways, you've got to be in that group. That's the only place I go. And it's made selecting winners for giveaways a snap because I can just go right to the community and pick a lucky listener. And that's literally how I do it. There's no mystery. There's no magic formula. There's no requirement to like or post or share. It's just be part of the community. And I hope that you find it to be a useful place, a place that is life-giving to you and that is helpful to you as you learn and grow on your journey as a gardener. The Facebook group also has turned into a wonderful way to continue to provide really great information to you in between episodes. So when I'm not producing a show, I'm curating content for the Facebook group. Now, sometimes it's something personal I'll share with you that I'm experiencing in my own garden. And then other times I find great articles about gardening and I want to share them with you. So this week, I'm going to give you a little sampling of a few things that made it into the Facebook group the week before Christmas, December 2016. First up is a post from 
olddecors.com. And they're featuring the 17 best black flowers and plants to give the garden a dramatic touch. They include things such as violets and shrubbery, tulips, and coleus, among many, many other plants. And I thought they did a lovely job of pulling that all together. It's not always easy when you're coming up with a listicle to have it be something that's very helpful. And this is a case where not only are the suggestions spot on, but the pictures that they're using to show how dramatic these plants can be in the garden are really inspiring. Well, along the lines of the drama that's provided by black flowers is the legend of the Sympazuchal flower from Inside Mexico. InsideMexico.com provided this wonderful overview of the Day of the Dead flower, and it talks all about the beautiful legend that recounts the love story of two young Aztecs. So this was a really great article from InsideMexico.com, and it made it in the Facebook group this past week. Well, I love to share tutorials, and I ran across this lovely tutorial on how to create flowers using coffee filters. And what immediately attracted me to this article was the fact that the flowers are so incredibly lifelike, especially the roses. So this is an article from weddingbee.com, weddingbee.com. And the title of the article gives it all away. It says, Coffee Filter Flower Heavy Tutorial with Tips, meaning that there are a ton of pictures in this tutorial to guide you along and how to do it. Speaking of a pick-heavy experience... I stumbled on an old article, well, a relatively old article from April of 2015 that talked about how Apple had photographed the flowers for the watch face. And I have an Apple watch and I absolutely love it. In fact, I use it in the garden all of the time because the Surrey feature on the watch is fantastic. And there's just absolutely nothing easier than having garden gloves on your hands than being able to raise your wrist and answer the phone or just say, hey, Surrey, and leave a reminder for yourself on the watch. And I found the watch Surrey reminder feature to be absolutely tremendous. But one of the watch face options that was one of the very first options that came out with the watch was the flower, the face of the flower. And I shared this article in the Facebook group because it's so astounding to consider how much a flower changes as it begins to bloom. In fact, when Apple was creating those flower faces for the watch, 
they photographed the flower, a flower, whatever flower they were focusing on, over 24,000 times and then stitched that together so that the flower could be in motion and blooming. So, you know, the human eye can't capture that level of detail, but these still photographers were able to do it in stop motion, which is a painstaking process. And the article talks all about how they did it, and I thought it was absolutely fascinating. At the beginning of the month, I shared my 2016 gift guide. It was the long, long show devoted to shopping, virtually shopping with me for the gardener in your life. And it was an absolute blast. But one of the things I purposefully did not include in the gift guide is gardening books. So if you're wondering what you've missed in 2016 or you need to catch up on some good garden reading... Jane Perrone wrote a piece for The Guardian called The Best Gardening Books of 2016, and she proceeds to list her top 10 books for 2016. So if you're looking for a list and you want some ideas, this made the Facebook group this week. This blog post just came out in early December, so it's hot off the press. If you want to join the Facebook group, you'll see it there. I think she did a great job. There's a lot of books on here that I hadn't heard about before, and so it's worth checking out. Well, quickly before I introduce today's guest, there was an adorable story in Inside Edition about a five-year-old that was dressing up like a police officer and then riding his little mini motorcycle to nursing homes to deliver flowers. This one will make you smile. And I thought it was perfect for Christmas, which is why I included it in the Facebook group this week. So go ahead and check that out as well. Well, I'm very happy that I get a chance to replay this interview that I had done with Shelly Cram last month. We actually spoke spoke in the late part of the summer when we did this, and Shelley is talking to us all about the plants and the horticultural practices that are in the Bible. And I thought it was a fitting Christmas present for listeners of the show to hear my interview once again with Shelley Cram, the author of The Gardener's Bible. Well, hi there, Shelley. Hello, Jennifer. This is so exciting. It is. Well, I can't even remember how I stumbled on you or your blog, but I have to say that there is only one other person that has been as warm and inviting and open as you about sharing your knowledge and expertise, especially just via an email request, because I didn't know you before I emailed you. And that person is the wonderful horticulturist author, and writer Tova Martin. You both have such a gift of making other people feel so loved. And do you work hard to attune to others, or does that come naturally? Oh, goodness. Well, listen, what an honor to be on a short list with Tova Martin. She (laughs) is a wonderful writer and gardener. I love her work. I'm envious of her interview with Tasha Tudor. (laughs) I'd love to walk that garden someday. (laughs) No kidding. But, um, do I work? Oh, I wish my family were here to hear me answer this question. <laughs> yes, no, where are they when you get a question like naturally. this? I am a grumpy, cranky, <laughs> short-sighted, <laughs> and obviously task-oriented person. 
So any graciousness or grace or love is all the Holy Spirit. Well, that <laughs> it's all, is great. All God's work in me. So not natural. Well, you must be exceptionally industrious to write a companion to the Bible. Industrious or crazy, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Listen, I, I was laughing because I, I was I was reading on Amazon and somebody said the print is so small, and I'm going, it's a Bible, <laughs> right? I know <laughs> it is. It is the curse of Bi- of many Bibles, right? The font size. What is the font size in your Bible? Oh, I don't even know, but I do have empathy for anyone who says that. I've got my readers on right now, and I mean, it was always our concern that oh, how Shelley. heavy can we make this book? You <laughs> That's know? right. You're over 40, aren't you? Yes. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> As I you know. and I are adjusting our readers at this very moment yes. together. Shelly, you and I have so many things in common, including having kids in basketball. You yes. have five children with your husband, Topher, living in Irving, Texas, which is outside of Dallas, right? Yes. If or you've flown it, through Dallas, that's where we are, where yeah. the airport. Is it considered a suburb of Dallas? Um, yes. Yes. It is. Okay, so you're going to tell us uh, your the meaning of your husband's name or how your husband's name came to be. So we got to make sure we include that. But in the jacket of your book, it says you have a routine of morning journaling and an enduring hope to finish up the laundry and get out to the garden. So I'm so curious how you incorporate gardening into your daily life. Isn't that always the challenge? Well, first, my husband's name, Topher, comes from his full name, Christopher. It's the second half of Christopher. And that has proved to be a very amazing name. He I is love that name. A Christ bearer, that's what the name means, and he is Aww. that in every way. So um, he's, my book is dedicated to him, <laughs> which could be a show in itself. But anyway, <laughs> so about finishing up all your must-do chores, and getting out to the garden. Isn't that what we all hope for all the time? There's Absolutely. So much fun and work to be done out there and so many creative adventures awaiting, and it just always seems like all these super important things come up in the meantime. But, but it is daily life. I am very blessed to work at home, and so I, my main daily contact with the garden really has become my lunch. When it's time to make, I know that sounds so funny, but when it's time to make lunch, I just go, I at least get out there at lunchtime and clip a few herbs for a salad or sandwich or hopefully, you know, lettuces and bitter herbs are growing or something. Tomatoes, uh, you know, during the summer or cucumbers, just something. There's just all, I, I grow enough edibles. I'm not this phenomenal gardener by any means, but, but there's enough, there's something, there's always something out there and it's just a nice, a nice break and a nice adventure, a mini adventure in the well, day. I love that you're doing it and that you're you're using your garden. You have a, yes. you have an edible garden, right? Yes, believe it or not, I did not start out as an edible gardener, but uh, through really through this work, can you believe the Bible? Writing on plants of the Bible made me an edible gardener. It's I'm still laughing. <laughs> that is crazy. What were you before? Were you ornamental, more pretty garden? Yeah, ornamental flowers, just more, you know, enjoying the landscape around our house and flowers. My, my very first job was in a florist, so I've always loved flowers. So that was my first interest. And frankly, I didn't have a confidence. I didn't really think that 
I could grow anything to eat. <laughs> so, but uh, herbs are a great way to ease into that because herbs are so forgiving. So, I loved planting herbs, and they, you know, herbs have flowers too, and then of course their scents and flavors are wonderful, and it just kind of slowly draws you in. They do. When you're talking about edibles, I was thinking about how necessity plays a role in what we mm-hmm. garden. Because, of course, we don't need to grow our own food. We can go to the grocery store. We have food so readily available now that I think a lot of people start out with ornamentals and yeah. then go through the exact transformation that you went through, which is, and I went through actually as well, which is uh-huh. going more and more to edibles. It's almost like that dual functionality because they're they're beautiful in and of themselves as well as providing food so yes and uh, and just it's just it's such a simple joy and it really transforms your life and uh, transform my life just it sounds goofy but when it happens to you you'll know what I mean you, a little flower blooming you know it wasn't there yesterday it's blooming today my chamomile just started blooming <laughs> and it just it just gives you a little preciousness of the day that that is just wonderful. You were inspired to write by a book that had been written by Dr. Bruce Wilkerson, a fellow Christian teacher and author. What was the book and how did it inspire you? Oh, the most wonderful book. It's called Secrets of the Vine. It was published, oh, 15 or 16 years ago now. And this book absolutely captivated me. Dr. Wilkerson was taking a look, it is a Christian book, he was taking a look at John 15, where Jesus is talking to his disciples at the Last Supper, and he says, I am the true vine, my Father is the gardener, and he goes on from there into this wonderful soliloquy, if you will, and it's so instructive. But what Dr. Wilkerson did is he went and stayed at a vineyard, and he walked the, the vineyard with the vine dresser, the man who owned the property and cared for these grapes every day. And just the manner in which this man practiced his livelihood, how he tended and cared and cultivated the grapes, spoke exactly to what Jesus was saying. And that, to me, was absolutely stunning. The fa- I mean, I expect God's Word to be lofty and heavenly and, you know, very beautiful and beyond my comprehension. But the fact that it was true down to the dirt, down yeah. to how this man cultivated the land and his grapes was so convincing and so beautiful. I just love that it stood up to the actual practical care of of this man's livelihood. And I was just captivated ever since. (laughs) I love when we have those moments of clarity. It was, it was just, it was transformational. And just to know that this is what we can learn by tending grapes. What else can we learn? What other plants are in here? And it just sent me on this wonderful wild goose chase of all the different plants and landscapes and metaphors. And it's just been a love affair ever since. (laughs) Let's say you and I are at a dinner party. How do you describe your book to me? How do you refer to it? And how do you envision your readers using your book? Well, a very simple explanation is that it is a devotional Bible. It is a full Bible text. 
And there are daily a devotional daily essays. So the daily essays explore the plants and landscapes and garden metaphors that appear all throughout Scripture. We all know the Garden of Eden, and maybe you know En Gedi or the Garden of Gethsemane. But there are lots of landscapes in the garden in the Bible, and the gardening theme is really woven all the way through the Word. And it is so much fun to discover all the meanings and how not only the grapevine, but so many horticultural details speak volumes and metaphors to us about God and how he acts and how he relates to us, and it's just wonderful. And I will just boldly say, you don't know the Bible unless you've seen it from a gardener's point of view. It is stunning, and just how things line up and come together is really, really fun. Well, and it's astounding how many garden metaphors and significant meanings there are in the Bible. You you think you know, you know, you're when you think about the Bible, you start to, you know, rattle a few off. And then I picked up your book and I started to go through it. I'm like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. And it just, it just goes on and on. It's one after another. It is. And what's so fun is it... Um in an uncanny way, it relates to our own gardening and our own gardening experience. And my little plot of land, you know, in Irving, Texas, is, of course, thousands of miles away from the Holy Land, but it still relates in the most endearing way. And my simple garden practices, and I'm just a suburban mom, right? But even what I do relates to this beautiful story, and it's just a wonderful, wonderful experience. (laughs) Yes, it is. You know, I'm I'm really interested to know whether you're like me in the sense of, does spending time in the garden help you write? Do you need to be in the garden in order to be able to write about the garden? I like to be in the garden in order to write about the garden because I want to say things in an authentic way, in a real way. That's kind of what led me to plant so many of these plants, is I wanted to know what is it really like to tend them and keep them, and how do they grow, and what is my experience? So, of course, I had to research and glean from what others had written in so many things, but it's just a continuing love affair to discover and enjoy these different fruits and plants and trees and what is their aroma? What is their what is it like to have them in your garden? It's all very fascinating. It is. And and that's a great segue to and into my next question because we'd be remiss to talk about your book without mentioning Kim Hagen. How did oh, the two yes. of you work together? Oh my gosh, she is just an absolute godsend. Probably actually an angel, not a real person. <laughs> <laughs> But we are both moms. We have daughters. Uh, she, her daughter's the age of my second oldest daughter. And so we met through a prayer group and got to talking and knowing each other better. And it turns out she is as gaga for gardening and seeing God's ways in the garden as I was. And when this idea evolved and became a real book, she was right there, had the time to uh, help me in the research. So she was uh, wonderful. And she took on the plants, and so she would kind of do the pre-research. There's a lot of controversy in the plants as far as, you know, not all the names are strictly botanical, and which plant are they really talking about, and that kind of thing, back and forth. So she dug up a lot of that controversy compared against different resources and materials and websites, and, and kind of gave me a, a starting point to 
to go forward in the devotional writing. You know, that's a great point you're bringing up. Can you share an example of of a plant that, you know, maybe has a name in the Bible, but that today we know as a different plant? Oh, yes, there are lots. And I, it was so funny. When I, I started to, I was hoping I should steer clear of some of these controversies, because what do I know? You know, <laughs> I'll just pick the easy ones, right? But but some of them turned out to be the best. Uh, one example, oh, I can't pick a favorite. They're all my favorites. But the bay laurel tree, in some translations, that, that only appears once in Psalm 37, but in some translations, pick it up as the green bay tree, some say the green tree, some say, I don't think anyone actually says bay laurel, but green bay is another word for bay laurel, which bay laurel in itself has, you know, several common names. And so I, at first I thought, oh, I don't even want to get into that tree. It's got too many identity <laughs> crises for me to tackle. But it turns out to be almost the most profound statement in God's Word. I mean, it's just a beautiful because it's planted right there in that very, very hard place of good and evil, and when evil appears to flourish, and it, it really it uses the tree as a, you know, kind of on the bad side, like these evil people or evil actions are appearing to flourish, like the flourishing of a green bay tree. And so it just, it, but it also then speaks into the evil that was done against Jesus that brought him to his crucifixion. It, it just... So it, it, and that's a place where, unfortunately, when bad things come into our lives, we face that same trauma and that same debate. And um, so it, it was, ended up being very ministering to learn, learn about that tree. I so resonated with the H.H. H. Thomas quote that you used to open your book. His 1916 book, Round the Year in the Garden, is a treasure, and it's available on Amazon, too, if anybody's interested. But it is a beautiful description, uh, what you put in the beginning, this quote from his book, of the relationship we have with our gardens. And you quoted him, and the quote is, It is not by planting in spring and gathering flowers in summer that the heart of the garden is won. Rather, is the aim achieved by an acquaintance which has deepened to friendship and through friendship ripened to love. It really is a love relationship, what we have with our gardens. I love this quote because it really shows us that how our garden and relating to our garden is just such a beautiful metaphor to relating to our God and to the people in our lives that we just start by acquaintance and then deepen that into a friendship, and that trust grows, and it just ripens into a love and a trust and a devotion, adoration. And so it's not, and I love it because it's, it's, to me it says, oh, you don't have to know everything all at once. <laughs> We're going to get to know each other over time. And any hesitations you might have or any uh, fears you might have, uh, we'll get to those. You know, those will settle themselves out over time. It is so much like a personal relationship. When you think about starting as a gardener, it's like that romantic love. You're Mm -hmm. so excited to get gardening. You have all these dreams and ideas of what your garden is going to look like. And then over time, the things that you start to tolerate and the things that you accept as 
opportunities and weaknesses and you just deal with them as that relationship matures, your viewpoint changes and your mastery changes. You become a better gardener. Yes. And then you have this, I'm picturing as you're telling that story, just that first day when you off to the nursery and come home, you know, I would, I used to yes. read through the ads on Saturday morning, okay, this is this is go off, buy all these flats, oh, I'm so excited, so excited, bring it home, plant them, you know, and a couple of weeks go by, they all die, you know. That's right. <laughs> so, but then the one that lasts, then I, you know, then I know that plant has endured, and it's endured me and my care, it's endured the seasons and the whatever the weather has brought, or the rabbits. And, and, you know, it's almost, I almost feel like, oh, that plant and I are mourning the loss of everybody else, you know, <laughs> together, <That's right>. but it's <laughs> still standing. And then it just, it's, especially if that particular plant might grow and thrive over years and you just, there's all of a sudden this history that I'm reminded of. And it's just beautiful. I mean, we just know each other like, uh, I mean, obviously the garden doesn't know me, but I'm saying, you know, projecting there, but it's, um, it's just fun. It's just amazing. And it just sweetens over time. It does. And now you, I'm so curious. So you're in Irving. Is that a zone, is that garden zone similar to what would have been in that area where Jesus was? In some ways. We are the same, roughly the same latitude. And so many of the, most of the plants will thrive in my garden uh, as they will in the Holy Land. But one major difference is that, you know, the Holy Land is like California in its Mediterranean climate, okay. which means it has winter rains, but no rain through the summer. Now, we here in Texas, by great miracle, we're even having rain right now. So we can get intermittent rain showers, thunder showers throughout the summer. And that's where we differ. And then we have a lot more humidity than, of course, so uh, that's where we part ways. So some okay. of the plants that are really adapted, you know, uh, 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 that love that drier climate, uh, just they don't do as well here. Or we have to pick varieties that are more suited to, to uh, bread for the humidity. So, But as okay. far as the sun exposure, <laughs> certainly I relate to every <laughs> word about thirst, heat, you know, scorch. Yes. <laughs> yes. We can do scorched here for sure. Yes. No blizzards. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the Minnesotans are like, a, I say this to, to, <laughs> to northern readers, is it, it's kind of a flip-flop. We suffer in our summer months under the heat, and you maybe suffer in your winter months in the cold. That's so right. You might think of that sometimes. It's reversed. You it's know, reversed. But it's the same idea that... That uh, the weather is bringing you something to endure. <laughs> That's right. Well, suffering is suffering, right? It yes, doesn't matter I think what so. the cause, the end result is so. the same. Uh, okay, so somebody gets your book, uh, you know, and, and you sent me this lovely copy with this really sweet inscription, by the way. You said, Gardening is common ground, and it is so, so true, but I love that. Yes. You are so sweet. You have to, People have to spend a little bit of time, just like in any devotional Bible, looking at the beginning of the devotional to understand the layout so that you can maximize the intent behind how to use this book. And in the introduction, you guide readers through reading God's Word like a gardener. You say that the garden is a place, a work, and a story. Well, and on one hand, it's pretty much as simple as it sounds. We all can imagine a garden place. I mean, it is legitimately, you know, a physical 
plot of land, whether it's your garden, your part of your yard or your yard behind your house or a public garden in the town. So it is definitely a place, a place you go to. It can be a mental garden. I mean, sometimes that word is used to be an abstract place as well. But then a garden is also a work, or gardening is a work, because it's something that's cultivated, something that's cared for and tended, something that is designed, that has intent. That, you know, garden is very different than nature. A nature walk, you know, it's a completely different experience because you might see lovely trees on your nature walk, but in my garden, I'm going to plant those trees in a certain way so that they create a certain ambiance or a certain shelter. And, and so there's much design and creativity and, and development in garden work. But then what has I have just loved as I've gone through this work is a garden is really a story in the sense that there is a beginning, middle, and hopefully no end, but there is always a story to be had in a garden. I even challenge you to walk through someone's garden with them and see if you can get through it without a story. You can't. No, you can't. That's right. (laughs) They'll say, whoa, I love your roses. Oh, thank you. My grandmother planted these roses. These were her favorite, and I wanted to remember. Oh, what a lovely tree. Oh, thank you. My father gave me that tree when we first moved here. There is always a story to be had, whether it's where the plant came from or why you chose it or how it survived pest, pestilence, seasons, turmoil in the weather. You know, so there's so many stories, and that's really what uh, has become so endearing in this work is that the story of the garden and the beginning, middle, end, and this, that is the sense of excitement, a sense of drama, a sense of anticipation. And so I do really encourage, I know I'm one of those that likes to flip past, right past the introduction and just dig in, you know, just yes. figure it out. But, but there really is a wonderful uh, layout and anticipation that builds if you read it as the essays are organized. It gives you a sequence and a and, and then thereby an anticipation for what's coming next. What's yes. going to happen next? Yes. Well, I thought that the structure of your book is so helpful because right there in the beginning, you talk about the weekly themes that are going to be covered. And 12 weeks are spent touring the gardens of the Bible. 23 weeks are spent reviewing the garden work in the Bible. 10 weeks are spent studying the garden stories of the Bible. And finally, the last seven weeks are spent with garden tools and sort of putting together your garden tote. That's what I thought of as I was reading that. Now, did you envision readers reading these in a particular order or sequence, or do they just kind of pick and choose how they want to go through it? Well, I definitely suggest reading the sequence, and that's what I hoped for all along, because as I said, that sequ- by reading in a sequence, it, and that is the gift of gardening. See, this is so important. Gardeners are always doing things with anticipating what's coming next. Right, you don't. You when you're planting your cucumber seeds, you probably already have six or eight recipes on how to use those cucumbers, right? <laughs> yes, that's exactly you know right. you're going to have a whole summer full of cucumbers. So that's right. You're already anticipating that harvest and how you're going to use them, or how you're going to serve them, or who you're going to give them to. So that there's always that, and you know, we plant in the spring, anticipating the fall. We clean up in the fall, anticipating the spring. I mean, there's always this looking forward to what's happening next, and that is, uh, it's a moving forward attitude that gardeners have that the rest of the world needs from us. You know, we That's need right. to 
give this hope to the world that, and even, you know, storm comes through, tree crashes down, the whole, you know, all the cucumber trellises are dashed, right? That's right. But we think, well, now we have more sun once we get this tree out of the way. So, yeah, I mean, the gardeners are very, uh, you know, we, we mourn the crisis or we mourn the event, but we move forward and see the new opportunities that are, are made in that catastrophe. So it's a gift to the world to impart this hope and this sense of anticipation and excitement and eagerness. And so by reading through the sequence, which is to say all that math adds up to 52 weeks, if you haven't figured that out, the idea, of course, that you can have an essay each day to read through the whole year. If you can keep yourself to a year, I think you'll get too excited and you'll finish it way before that. <laughs> is that but, what you find when you talk to people? Are they finishing it early? Yes. Yeah, because ahead. again, it, you just drive, what's going to happen next? It just drives you crazy. You got to find out, right? <laughs> well, I know for my own self. I mean, I got through it in about two weeks. Um, wow! But I was pushing really hard, obviously, because I wanted to make sure that I had it read before we talked. But it is very—it's like reading a personal essay. The devotions, you know, again, it draws the word out, the gardening words and the gardening metaphors and the plants, and it draws them out and hopefully into how you personally can relate to them and embrace them and embrace these ideas and these teachings and these nourish- this nourishment. Yes, it's very personal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's tour the gardens of the Bible. And just like if we were touring gardens here in Maple Grove or in Irving, Texas, where you are, we might spend more time at one and not as much time at another. But take me with you and let's spend extra time at your favorites and maybe breeze through others at a higher level. Okay. All right. Everybody, everybody got their tour guides ready? That's right. <laughs> you, you know where this party starts in the Garden of Eden. Eden every, yes. I think the Garden of Eden is in every soul's heart, whether they've ever opened the Bible or not. But that is, of course, the perfect, the idyllic, the epitome of a garden, everything healthy, leafy, nourished, flourishing. It was the meeting place of God and his people. It was the place that he set aside. God planted this garden, and he set it aside perfectly and intently for his people to to be with them, to relate to them, to spend time with them. And so it's every perfect idea you've ever had about a garden, and we could talk the whole time about this, but we'll move on because, of course, there is one major event that shadows the rest of the story, and that is this one tree in the middle of the garden. There are two trees that are pointed out among many fruitful trees that they were free to eat from, but there were two trees pointed out. One was the tree of life and the other the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that's the only tree in the whole place they couldn't eat from, were told not to eat from, which they promptly did, <laughs> in a nutshell, and that sets off, and if you can recognize this as, as a literary story in one of many dimensions here, but it is a literary uh, device that is the conflict that sets this story in motion. There's always a conflict to begin a story, and that's what this is. And so we know by the nature of this tree, this good and evil, they have already been in this good place, the Garden of Eden, and so this contrast of this tree is going to send them out into places that are not garden-like, that are, and in the Bible that is represented by the desert. And so this story where the garden is lush and sheltered and orderly and nourished and well-watered, that's a big term, well-watered, it has a river running right through it, you know now that they've taken this step away from God, they've done what he advised against, 
that they are going to go to the opposite place. And so sure enough, we go out into the Fertile Crescent where we, the Fertile Crescent uh, is the land around the Tigris-Euphrates and really this whole region of the Holy Land from what is now Iraq on sweeping on over into Egypt. But this, this strife is part of the Holy Land life, which is the Tigris-Euphrates rivers and then the Nile River in Egypt they flood and everything's well watered, and but that line there's almost a line where those waters don't, you know, where those waters end, and everything on the other side of that line is desert, <laughs> you know, is dry. Wow. I mean, some places annual rainfall four inches. So we have this constant contrast of garden and desert, garden and desert. And that, of course, ends up, the epitome of that is the Sinai Desert. If you skip through your pages to Exodus, you'll find God's people wandering in the Sinai Desert. Now, I'm not saying that a desert is not a garden, or there's no such thing as a desert garden, because, of course, people of Arizona would go crazy without being able to garden, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I'm saying more from a literary standpoint or from a metaphorical place, the the desert is the antithesis or the opposite of a garden in the sense that it is lack of water where the garden is well watered and it is there's no shelter you know in the garden in the garden of eden big broad leaf trees providing shelter and and uh, coolness whereas the trees of the desert have little needle-like leaves like the acacia or the white broom and so that sense of shelter is gone fortunately that's not the end of the story and god does bring them up out of the Sinai Desert into the land he promised to them. And that's a big, another big theme, of course, all the way through is this promised land, this land that was foretold, kind of the epitome of this promised land is a place called Engedi, which is an oasis. Again, on the shores of the Dead Sea, here's the Dead Sea is on the uh, eastern border of the promised land and lowest point on earth, hot, hot temperatures in the summer that waters cannot escape, so they're stanky and salty and nothing can live in the waters of the Dead Sea, and yet on the shores is this oasis of Engedi that has been there uh, all along that is fed by waterfalls, it's fed by underground aqueducts, and and it, uh, the gardens just flourish there, especially in the time of King Solomon. They were built up and flourishing, and again, so most of this is described in the book Song of Songs, which is just over the top with descriptions of the trees and the fruits and the flowers, the fragrances, the blooming. It's all just very lush and lovely, and lovers are in that story once again, almost mirroring the Adam and Eve relationship of he and she, lovers of this book. And so, again, we're just into that good, flourishing, lovely, loving place. But that's not quite the end of the story either, (laughs) because even as this king has built up these gardens, as uh, King Solomon leaves the throne, he leaves a succession of kings that follow God, don't follow God. So it's, again, this cycle of good, evil, good, evil, good, evil. And that pummels on out until finally they're exiled in the gardens of Persia. So here is the extreme exile, and people are out, you know, far, far away from this land promised to them. And yet the gardens of Persia, the palace gardens, around the uh, palaces of Persia offer a form and a structure that is, we discover later at the end of this garden journey. These gardens were walled gardens, which 
uh, is the heritage of our word for paradise. That means walls around a garden. Hmm. And in the land of Persia, they the, the terrain is so barren and the wind swept that they would wall in their gardens as, again, as shelter, as protection against the tundra-like situation outside. And they would, against the tundra-like situation outside, and they would design a river or a water course going right down the middle, and there would be trees planted in an orderly way on either side. So eventually people got back to their promised land, and that brings us into the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem and the Garden of Gethsemane at the base of that mountain. And one of the uh, just epic, epic uh, happenings at the Mount of Olives and, of course, the crucifixion and, and Garden of Gethsemane has been where Jesus spent the night before his crucifixion in absolute, just the darkness of that landscape. He was there through the dark of night, praying and completely poured out, pressed out as so such a beautiful um, uh, coincidence that the gar- Gethsemane means oil pressing. That's mm. where they pressed out the olive fruit to receive that oil, and this is where Jesus is pressed out by the sins of the world, just pressed out. And so if you can imagine every moment you've ever known, I've ever known, of depression or oppression or suppression, just that pressing out that is happening in this garden where the olives are pressed out. It's big, heavy stones that were the presses to squeeze out the oil from the fruits. And even olive trees in their own uh, habit are very contorted. You know, they're not beautiful, tall, symmetrical trees. They're just very contorted and craggly and uh, bent over in the way they grow. And yet they endure, they live for almost thousands of years, uh, but they just have this very um, craggy look to them, which almost mirrors Jesus bent over and hunched and praying and enduring and being pressed out um, to the point, you know, sorrow to the point of death is how he's explained in this dark, dark place. After his crucifixion, his body is laid in a tomb which happens to be in a garden, a beautiful, beautiful detail um, that in one sentence in John, and yet his body was laid in a garden. And when he is resurrected and comes back to his people, one of the first people to see him is Mary. And for whatever reason, because he's a champion storyteller, I think, he appears to her as a gardener. And she's frantic looking for him, and she sees him, and she thinks he's the gardener. And she says, where have they put him? Where have they put my master? And and he's chuckling, right? Can we picture him chuckling, almost maybe with a gardener's hat on? You know, I'm right here all along. And so beautiful, beautiful detail. The story continues on through the gardens of, or the land of Asia Minor, and then out in Macedonia, and then, um, the book ends, as you know, in Revelation, and there is a garden of light. And you have to read closely to see it. But in this city of Revelation, this holy city of Jerusalem, it is sparkling and dazzling, and the river through it has become crystal, and the walls around it are made of precious stones, not just rock walls anymore, but walls of jasper and lapis lazuli. And there are trees planted on either side, the tree of life on either side. And so this form that we've seen all along is back. 
And that is where the story ends in this glorious garden of light. What's so wonderful is that I think as for me, as I look now, I feel like I finally could get a grasp of the whole story. And now I can go back to the places because sometimes in my life I feel like I'm in that dark place to those scriptures about the Mount of Olives and those places. And then there's times when, there's definitely times when I feel like I'm wandering, right? It's almost a joke now when I'm confused or dazed. I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. You know, Sinai Desert Day, there we go, you know? (laughs) And then there are times when it just all comes together in the most beautiful way and everything's blooming and everything's gorgeous. So when I can identify where am I in my thinking right now, I can go to that, you know, identify it with a garden place and go to those scriptures and and just be reassured, be calmed, be um, oriented again. Well, and I love too, because the Garden of Eden, the word Eden was inspiration for your blog name, right? Yes, yes. Many translators say that Eden means delight. And I just love that you can read it as God planted a garden in delight. And I think that speaks, I mean, don't you feel delighted when you're in your garden at some point? I mean, you know, you might have some hours of weeding or maybe you realize the sprinkler was broken and nothing has any water. I don't know. But then you come upon, like I said before, a certain flower blooming or, uh, you know, when the bulbs, when I'm sure you feel this way up in the north, when those bulbs first put their little tips out of the yeah. bare soil in the spring, I mean, couldn't it just like, Oh, this is the best day ever. Yes, through the snow (laughs) even sometimes. Yes, absolutely. Well, I'm always fascinated with the phrase, heaven on earth. You know, we're trying to recreate that. And of course, it's fruitless, right? There's no way that we can create that perfect place here on earth because, you know, just one day out of your garden, even if you've got it all weeded and it looks fantastic, you can go back in a single day and (laughs) chaos reigns, right? Chaos and all of the things that we have to overcome. And yet we go out. We do it again. It's just been indwelling hope and joy and uh, again moving forward eagerness that that life even though you know uh, that just happened to me at the beginning of the summer I had these beautiful little charred seedlings all coming up and everything was happy and good and I don't know who ate them overnight (laughs) I went out the next day and nothing Ah, but it, it can't quell my desire to grow that chard and try again and Shelly for Christmas you can ask for a trail cam and you can set that up and monitor it, your garden, and then you'll get a picture of just who is out there yes. and who is causing destruction. I have a friend in <laughs> South Carolina that's a garden blogger, and she posted um, she, some something was getting into her garden and causing all kinds of destruction, and she posts this video. It's an armadillo. Oh, my God. And, you know, I'm like, oh, my goodness, that's something I would have never, it wouldn't have even dawned on me, you know, being in a northern garden. And so I just, I was mesmerized. I was watching this armadillo. I couldn't, I couldn't take my eyes off him. That's so so funny. There you go. Trail cam. Trail cam. There you go. 
Roughly half of the weeks in your book are devoted to the work of the garden, and it's everything from making choices and preparing the soil to the joyous celebration of the harvest. And these are aspects of gardening that have a much deeper meaning in the Bible. They do. They have a constant, they're constantly referred to in the Bible or implied or used as metaphor. And I think that is definitely a bridge for us to to our own understanding and to coming to grips with our own circum or my own circumstances. And so, I mean, actually, the first chapter I wanted to write was pruning. <laughs> Does uh, anyone feel pruned out there? Is anything being cut away from your life? I mean, when actually, when I started writing this book, my husband's job had been cut away from us, mm. and so it was just very vital to the, um, you know, the success and the. Um, prevailing of our family that I could view this situation as a pruning. Um, and so that, that was the chapter I wanted to start with. But then really, I mean, so, so many of these are just metaphors. Weeding, I mean, how often do I have to weed out negative thoughts and, mm. you know, negative situations and just choose, you know, turn off the news or, <laughs> you know, weed out and keep, keep uh, fresh my mind and, um, then, of course, choosing is the first step, whether you're choosing a plant, choosing what seeds to sow, choosing what varieties you want to grow, choosing how you want to live your life. I mean, it's just a very back and forth. So all of these the ways we keep the garden are just a back and forth analogy for how we can look at our lives. Yes. Well, I love to hear how you talked about pruning. And I was struck by all the ways or all the times that I talked to new gardeners who are so afraid to prune. And hearing you talk about it and the benefits of pruning, not only in the garden, but in our lives, I think makes it so much sweeter. It, you understand why that needs to happen. Yes, it does. And then some plants, I mean, most of the plants from the rose, rosier, rose I can't pronounce the uh, Latin name, but the rose family, I mean, they actually need to be pruned. Once your rose bush flowers, if you don't prune it, it won't flower again as well as it could. Um, and I have struggling, pathetic roses to show that. Sometimes <laughs> I don't get out there to prune them. I mean, right now they should be covered with blooms, but I didn't prune them you in June after them. they bloomed. So my own fault, you know. Um, and but it's just uh, uh, and I, that was actually about the time I had read uh, Dr. Wilkerson's book. I, my issue of Martha Stewart Living Magazine came out and saying the same thing: prune those roses, don't be shy, you know. Don't be shy. Well, my brother <laughs> him back. That's right. My brother just bought a house and it's got an apple tree in the front. But I said, Justin, you've got to get out here and prune this apple tree. That's one of your first jobs. You know, one of the best experts on fruiting trees is Lee Reich, and he says. Yes. Prune that apple tree. Prune it hard enough so that if you were going to throw a cat through it, <laughs> the cat would sail through. <laughs> My brother, we love cats. We grew up with cats. But we need these powerful images yes, for people in yes. the garden. But I loved the way that you were talking about pruning uh, when you first yes. introduced pruning. I know you were, you were sharing your personal story, but that is exactly what people need to think about when they think about pruning. So that was yes. perfect. So thank you for sharing that. But I love that. The work of the garden is therapeutic, has deeper meaning. And I think if you can connect to the deeper meaning, you understand the work better. Yes, yes. And it nourishes your whole life, not just your garden, but your whole life. And that's why you love, have you ever met a farmer or, you know, an old 
salty gardener that you didn't like? I mean, do you if if I come across those people, I just want to sit at their feet and yes. you know and listen to how they they don't waste time on things that don't work and they don't waste you know spend hours on Facebook or I mean you know they know what's good, what's right, and that's what they yes. do. And yes. and I like to just glean that sort of. Um, practicality from them. It's wonderful. Yes. Well, if you think about it like a marriage, right? Your your relationship with your, your garden. It's way more interesting to talk to people who've been married 50 years than people who've been married one year, right? Yes. Yes. And when you meet someone who's been married 50 years, I mean, you know, they're not hassling over the electric bill anymore. You know what I'm yes. I mean? You know, or all those things that upset your apple cart when you're first married. <laughs> I mean, they, you know, now they use the same toothpaste. They don't fret over years on the sink. I mean, it's just, it's wonderful to have that sense of overcoming and what's right, what's important, and throw the rest out. That's right. We are going to be talking about now the plants that are mentioned specifically in the Bible. But before we do, I want to make sure that we talk about one of the most useful resources that is on your website, uh, Garden and Delight. That's your website. And you have created a tremendous plant guide. So you must be a bit of a researcher and an archivist. Well, I guess so. <laughs> I'm uh, insanely curious. I think it might be a better description, but but of course, uh, you know, this God's Word for Gardeners Bible is already thick and heavy enough, so there really was no way to put photos and images in. But of, but at the same time, I mean, taste and see that the Lord is good. We are driven to see what these things look like and be curious about how to grow them or what they smell like or what they're. Mm-hmm. You know, we're a touch and feel and tasty type of people, right? So. Yes. So that's what the plant guide is there for, to just get some images. I try to do a photo of the overall habit so you can get a vision of how that might, where you might situate that in your own garden. And, and then some of these things, I mean, if, if you're in the north, you're probably not going to be planting an olive tree, but, but then just the guide also talks about how you can use those in cooking or use the fruits that you purchase at the store or at the farmer's market. So it just tries to um, make a way for these plants to come into your life in whatever garden or table or both um, and just to be enjoyed and to be um, curious and to think over and to connect these scriptures to. I love that. Well, uh, why don't we play a little bit of a game and I will say a plant and then you share the deeper meaning and the role of that plant in the Bible. <laughs> Let's pretend we have flashcards, huh? Let's I do want to make a flashcard game someday. <laughs> it is the key to passing any task. Yes, That's how it you is. study is a flashcard. I right? have spent many, many nights making flashcards with the kids. So, well, let's start out with our absolute favorite plant as gardeners thistles. Oh, thistle. No, aren't we always combating against a thistle? Who invented all those little downy things that just make them spread so quickly? So thistles is a mark of, uh, or a, um, a mark of neglect, really. Fields that are filled with thistles have not been tended and kept is the implication. And of course, that comes right from, right after Adam and Eve eat from the tree and they receive their curse. Uh, you know, they are going to work from the ground where thorns and thistles are going to battle those, um, and it, it's going to be a battle. It's just, we're just to say it from the beginning. It's going to be a battle. <laughs> so the thistle <laughs> represents that. 
It's a battle. Well, I'm a little I'm a little hurt too as I'm internalizing this that it's a mark of neglect because I swear that they were not there the day before and yet <laughs> there they are. They camouflage themselves. Yes. Yes, although we do have one saving grace. There's always a saving grace with God and that is that artichokes are thistles. So oh. <laughs> I do have artichokes in my garden to symbolize I'm not near the fields. I'm in a suburb, so I don't battle thistles as personally as maybe farmers do. But Wow. But. Well, how about wormwood? So wormwood, again, is one of those controversial plants, and it actually uh, really is almost synonymous with bitterness. And and in many Bibles, they uh, the, the word for wormwood is sometimes just translated as bitter or bitterness. They don't actually put the plant reference there, um, but that is a the type of bitterness that comes from turning away from the Lord, and um, and it's a very there are two kinds of bitterness in that are represented in God's plans. But this is turning away from the Lord, and so uh, and if you do, if you turn away from, the, I mean, the, the Lord and His Spirit is kindness, goodness, gentleness, peace, patience, joy. If you're going to turn away from that, you are eventually going to be a bitter old person, right? <laughs> so is that uh, is that how it was used in the Bible, was uh, talking about turning away from God? Yes, yes. Oh, it's Deuteronomy 29, it's mentioned, or 31, and then several places in Lamentations, and, um, it's, it, and it makes a bitter drink that is actually the source of um, absinthe, or I, mean, I don't know all the details, remember all the details of that, but it, it signifies bitterness. And and then there's a final mention of it in Revelation um, that signify you know reference to people turned away. Okay, interesting. Hyssop. Yes. Hyssop. Oh, one of my favorites. This is one of the first plants I planted because it is a, um, a part of the oregano family. So if you've ever grown oregano or Greek oregano, it's a similar um, scented and habit. And but it's an herb, and this it symbolizes forgiveness. Uh, it says, you know, wash me clean with hyssop in Psalm 51, and then hyssop was lifted to Jesus' face as he was on the cross. And so if you think about herbs, especially the mint family, you know, you have to work really hard to kill one of the mint family. <laughs> I mean, they, yes. they are just very forgiving in their culture. You can cut them back to the ground and they will grow. You don't have to be particular about how you prune them or cut them. They're just very uh, forgiving and very enduring and um, and wonderfully fragrant, wonderfully fragrant in all the different mints, uh, mints, rosemary, uh, but hyssop is right in there too. So um, this is about forgiveness. Wow. So have you ever given a friend a sprig of hyssop? When you I do it all the time. If you were, I would have one on your desk if you were down the street from me. <laughs> but it's been a wonderful plant that thrives in my garden, and um, and I just I love to give it away. I love the I love the language of flowers. You know, I uh, discovered that rosemary is the herb for remembrance. Years ago, people would give someone rosemary if um, they had lost a loved one. And so mm-hmm. every spring, I plant rosemary, and then I take a picture of it and I send it to my friends that have gone through a loss in the last year and said, "Hey, I you know I planted rosemary in honor of your mom or in honor mm-hmm. of your your child." And those are such sweet things to do with the plants in the garden. We've lost that. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to add hyssop to my garden. Yes. 
now that I know yeah. that it means forgiveness. But yes, I love that. That's fantastic. The bees love it. It flowers in the late spring, and it's covered with tiny little white blossoms. So part of that verse is, cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean, wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Mm-hmm. Well, there is a moment when all those little white flowers blossom, it looks like it's dusted with snow except for that it's happening when it's 90 degrees out. So, <laughs> you know, it's not really snow. But but uh, so, again, just all these references, these layers and layers of references to our plants, landscapes, gardening. But but uh, the bees go crazy for these flowers. They're just, co- it's covered with honeybees. And so, in fact, originally, my, the first year I planted cucumbers, I planted them right next to my hyssop. I had tons of cucumbers because all the bees were right there, pollinating in the cucumber vine. And the last two years, I had the cucumbers across the garden, and I hardly got any cucumbers. I don't think they just got pollinated as well as they did by that hyssop. So, um, and so when God was hyssop grows wild all over uh, the promised land. Originally, it did anyway. And so, when God was saying to His people, "This is a land of milk and honey." I'm thinking, you bet there was honey, because look at all these bees. Because there's <laughs> hyssop. Well, it's so funny you mentioned that, because I was looking it up before we talked, and it had said that beekeepers used to put hyssop all over their beehives in an attempt to get the bees to stay. Uh-huh. So there's something to it, then. They must go crazy for it. Yes. So our pollinator, we need to repopulate our pollinators. So everyone needs to plant hyssop. Hyssop. That's our new to-do. That's right. That's right. So Rose of Sharon, that's the next one. Now, this is an interesting plant. Again, back into some of the plant controversies of the Bible. Uh, We know the plant Rose of Sharon is Althea. It's a taller shrub that has these big, beautiful, kind of singular blooms. I mean, the, the shrub will have many blooms, but they are kind of standout. Uh, big hand-sized flowers usually, but that I don't know at what point that shrub was named Rose of Sharon, but that is not a shrub that actually is a native to the Holy Land. Uh, This phrase, Rose of Sharon, really refers to rose, that's a word of of wildflowers. It's more of a generic uh, term in Hebrew, and so it wasn't a specific botanical reference. Um, and then Sharon is a plain, it's a, it's a geographical region on the western side of the of promised land. And so uh, it's talking, it really, that really means is, you know, wildflowers of the Sharon region is what it would be literally. But, but since it was taken to name this new, this other plant, Rose of Sharon, we kind of have this controversy, right? Yes. <laughs> what are they really talking about? But what is so sweet is just, again, because uh, we, we don't need to get too caught up in the details of translation or mistranslation because it all ends up kind of working out in this wonderfully mysterious way. But but what where that's referred to in Song of Solomon is uh, the, the, the lover or the woman is kind of lamenting that she hasn't taken care of herself and she's all suntan from working outside all the time and, and she's kind of not feeling beautiful. You know, she hasn't cared for herself very well. But this lover finds her incredibly beautiful. And so he's saying to her, you stand out to me. Your beauty stands out to me. And so whether we're talking about kind of the standout flowers of the Rose of Sharon, the Althea plant, or whether we're saying that in this drift of wildflowers, you you may think that you blend in with all these other little flowers, but I notice just one of you. You stand out to me. So 
kind of either way it works, which I think is just charming. I love that. I like that too. How about cucumber? So cucumber is again a plant. These were cultivated in their life in Egypt. They're mentioned in Numbers 11. But there's a lot of cultivating to cucumbers, and cucumbers represents one of those summer crops that, again, you need to keep weeding, keep watering, daily watering. It's a very cultivating, very, uh, you know, you want to pick those cucumbers at a certain time. You don't want them to get too big. You want, need to make sure they're getting pollinated, which I'm never good at. <laughs> so it's a very intense, demanding, time-invested relationship with your cucumbers. And so that's really a good model for the worship of God and that daily watering that needs to happen and daily weeding. And so it's really about cultivating this worship. How about leeks, onion, and garlic? So leeks, onion, and garlic are also mentioned along with uh, cucumber. And these, again, were plants that were that grew very well in Egypt because of the good watering from the Nile River. But this also, it, um, the, I love to say, <laughs> no crying over onions. You know when you chop onions, it makes you cry? Well, there's kind of a little parody in the fact that because these leeks, onion, garlic, and the cucumbers and melons are mentioned um, in a you know, so, somewhat stressful situation when God's people are wandering out in the Sinai and they're wandering and wondering when this wandering is going to end and wondering where they're going to get their next meal or their next water or, or their meat. I think at this point they're ready for meat. And so there's a lot of complaining and grumbling and whining that goes on, and they complain to Moses, and Moses complains to God, and it just is not a very happy time. <laughs> so again, this is about cultivating you know, not this normal response to whine and grumble, but this cultivating this hope and this trust and this worship and, you know, believing that you are not going to wander forever, you are provided for, you know, our God is all-powerful, He knows, he's, His timing is, so it's, it's, again, this cultivating, but no whining, <laughs> no crying over onions. And not what we'd expect when, you know, when you think about what would be in the Bible about leeks, onion, and garlic, you would not expect that's what the message is behind the reference to these in the Bible. Yes, but I have found it so funny. Uh, and I've grown to cultivate leeks, onions, and garlic, which, by the way, if you're not growing your own garlic, you are missing out. Absolutely. <laughs> As if garlic could be any better, when you grow it in your own garden, it is it, they're just, it just is a whole new level of delicious delight. And so that uh, savor and that, I mean, you know, when you toss that garlic in the pan with a little olive oil and you just let it simmer for a minute, I mean, it fills the whole house with this wonderful aroma, and, and that's kind of the other side. We don't want the whining and the crying over onions. We want that aroma of these wonderful, tasty uh, additions to our meals that bring savor and taste, and we want to draw people in with that with that kind of aroma, not this whiningness stuff. Mm, so. <laughs> that's awesome. How about Lily of the Valley? So Lily of the Valley is also like Rose of Sharon. The term Lily in the Bible is not necessarily a specific Lily breed or species. It's more of a generic term, and it generally refers to uh, f- bulb flowers, I mean, lilies, and even, you know, the leeks, I mean, garlic, but that family of flowers, they're bulbs. They grow from bulbs, and so you know there's a time of the year where they're dormant, and then they spring to life. So 
uh, the lily that probably is referred to actually in the Bible when they say lily of the valley is a, a Madonna lily, which is similar to um, our Easter lilies. They bloom a little bit later, but they're white and they've got six petals and they adorn the column capitals of Solomon's palace. And uh, but then later, and again, I need to research this at some point. Somebody took this sweet little little bulbs lily of the valley and named them in honor of that phrase from the Bible, which, so the little, cute little lilies of valleys that bloom in the spring that look like little teardrops, the white flowers, and they again have that same sweet scent that most lilies have, but that's not the actual species that grew in the Holy Land. But I think if you plant the little cute ones and they grow more in the shade, the lilies referred to, the actual species are probably more sun lovers, but I think if you smell those sweet lily of the valleys as they take over your garden and think of the Lord and his sweetness and that sweet aroma and the sweetness of his love and everlasting love, I don't think he'll mind that yes. it's one species or the other. Well, I'm glad that you clarified that because I had a an old gardener friend and she used to call her lily of the valley Mary's tears. Yeah, sweet, sweet. Have you heard of that before? I've never heard of that before, but there are many um, associations that come later, which I think are wonderful, yes, and, and, you know, they're referring us back to God and His Word and remembering Him. So That's yeah. right. Well, how yes. about lentils? Oh, my gosh. Lentils are hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> they are. Okay. I have to say, I never ate a lentil until I worked on this project, but they're one of my favorites now. I haven't grown them in my garden yet. I get all my lentils from Walmart. But <laughs> Okay. But it's just this wonderful, insightful, and this is one of the examples I just love of the horticultural details are phenomenal here. But uh, first of all... Um, Lentils appear mainly in well in stories of hungry men. <laughs> you find lentils, which okay. is funny because we always what we put lentils in hearty soups, right, uh, for the winter, and you know when we're trying to warm up and and become hearty and nourished and and overcome hunger. And uh, if you've had any man working out in the outdoors, whether he's been hunting or snowmobiling or what have you, you bring him inside. You want to feed him, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you know your men. You know you need to feed them That's as soon right. as possible. And so uh, this hearty lentil stew. So sure enough, there is a story of hearty lentil stew and this man coming in famished. It ends up having a little bit of a trickery in this story. It's in Genesis. It's between the two brothers, Esau and Jacob. And so Esau is so hungry. He's the older brother, and he is due the birthright, which is the, the oldest brother took the inheritance. And it's not as we think of it today. It's not like he took it and he got it and lucky him he was now rich. It was more that the wealth and the prosperity of that family was entrusted to him to carry it on. And so that was his position as a first brother. He would take this inheritance of his family and carry it on to bless everybody in that family community by continuing to prosper it. But he was so hungry, and, and Jacob, his younger brother, tricked him and said, okay, if you want to eat my hearty lentil stew, then you have to give me the birthright. Okay. And, which is to say, you have to give me the inheritance. And poor Esau was just like, I'm so hungry. If I don't eat, I'm going <laughs> to die anyway. He was angry, <laughs> hungry. The <laughs> Take the birthright, whatever. Yep. But it, it's interesting, then, it, this story is referred to over in Hebrews in the New Testament, and the commentary uh, in, in Hebrews is, don't be impulsive. 
Don't be impulsive and throw something away that is mm. set aside for you, that is set apart for you. And and what's funny is that lentils are sometimes called a pulse. That's lentils, right. beans, um, the the grains that are protein, um, you know, vegeta- high on a vegetarian diet, they're called pulses. And here is That's this exactly command, right. don't be impulsive. And it's such an important instruction, and, and this is looked at in the devotions on rooting and root you know the roots of your heritage and the roots of your family and 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 you know don't throw those away don't be impulsive don't get easily irritated about something and cut off part of your family um and it really speaks to a much deeper a, a very deep level actually but just on the beauty that and the the way that God has designed our family and our inheritance and for things to come from generation to generation. And it's all beautiful. And, and here it is in this little pot of lentil stew. <laughs> wow. Well, I yeah. really appreciate that connection. I will never forget that connection now between lentils um, as pulse plants and then this impulsive story. So I really thank you for that. Isn't that something? And then also the pulses are a nitrogen fixers. If you want to get technical in your gardening, they, and so a, nitro, a nitrogen-fixing plant um, brings nitrogen into the soil, and that nourishes the plants around it and the plants that come after it. It's restorative. And so, you know, it speaks again to the nourishment of our families and our heritage and the people yes. that came before us and, and how we are to, to hold that dear and hold that valuable. Well, I love that. Well, of mm-hmm. course, people associate the mustard seed with the Bible. Um, my mother, when she was a little girl, had a little bracelet, and it had a, a little round glass bead. And inside the bead was a mustard seed, and it was so, so tiny, and I'm sure that's why it was preserved in this little, little capsule that was attached to that bracelet, and I still have it, but I, I was I was struck as a little child getting this bracelet and thinking, oh my gosh, look at this tiny, tiny, tiny little seed. It's amazing. It is amazing, and it speaks to so much, and I just... I, there's so we can do a whole show on mustard seeds. <laughs> so there are several verses Jesus refers to them most in several different ways. Our faith being as uh, all we need is faith as small as a mustard seed, um, and it's also associated then with God's possibilities, where He says, you know, what is impossible with man is possible with God, and that's a very simple, small belief that that's all you need to to just then watch and be dazzled by what God can bring about. A lot of scholars or people have tried to dissect and say, oh, well, because there's a verse where it says, you know, it's the smallest of seed and grows the largest of plants. And it's not so specific as, yes, mustard seeds are the smallest, because they're not the smallest ever in the history of plants seed. No, they are small, but they, you know, there's arugulas are smaller, I think, right? But but what it's what it's showing there is that hyperbole, the smallest to the largest. That's and, right. and and there are situations, if, especially when you uh, really focus your life and follow the Lord and bring Him into everything you're doing, He brings you into some harrowing hyperbole. <laughs> and I know you know this because you are a podcaster. Yes. When you have way too much to do, there is no way I could accomplish all this. And God brings us to those places to say, 
yeah, you cannot do this. It's impossible for you, but it's not, but it's possible for me. So you sit and watch me do this on your behalf or make this come together despite. And so it's, it's tr- teaches us to just take a deep breath and kind of laugh with these hyperboles. Like there's no way this can happen. And, and it can because God is able and he's possible and he's all powerful and he can do anything. Wow. Well, I love that. And there's a great book that's also called Mustard Seeds that I have and that I love. And it's by Lynn Coulter. And yeah, have you read that? It's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. That's one of my favorite books. I love that book. How about the Bay Laurel Tree? Well, this I mentioned it briefly earlier, but uh, this is an amazing, this is a very powerful tree. Um, And one of the most beautiful things is that it's Again, the way we use this tree, we, uh, bay laurel, it's a tree that will grow to, um, you know, between 10 and, well, it can get up to 50 feet over time. They're slow growers, um, and they are probably, I think, zone 9, zone 8. Uh, so you, you could grow them as a topiary up in the north. But they're beautiful, and when their tree, their leaves come in in the spring, it's just, it literally is a luxuriant green of these new bay leaves and and it's a surprise if you're used to bay leaf from the grocery store which is dried in a spice jar so we yes. typically use the dry leaves to flavor soups and and fish and they're particularly good in fish um fish dishes and and it's a leaf where you, you put it in the pot and its oils will simmer out as you're simmering something but then you actually discard the leaf it's too tough to actually eat the leaf, but the flavor will will really enhance uh, soups and, and, like I say, meat sauces and that sort of thing. So we're used to the dry leaves, but, but the green leaves are even more flavorful and even more wonderful to behold. And there is a teaching in Ezekiel that talks about the green and the dry. And it is a very uh, interesting play on uh, Jesus and his death and his the evil that comes against him. And so, it's, again, it's this play on good and evil, green and dry, and, and the wondering that we have as we see evil situations appear to flourish. That's what it says about the Green Bay tree in Psalm 37. So when I see this appear to flourish, and we certainly have many evil situations in the headlines every day, it appears that things appear to flourish, and when, when will this end? You know, why is this happening and when will this end? And those are questions that we all ask probably on a daily basis, unfortunately. But um, so that this very real struggle and uh, fear and questioning is is, uh, very beautifully addressed through the horticulture of the bay laurel tree. Well, and I love the Latin name for this tree is Loris nobilis. And the nobilis part means notable or renowned. When you're trying to draw associations between modern interpretations and then the biblical meaning of of these plants, is that is that something that's a lot of work for you to do, or does it just evolve over time? Um, It is a. It always starts out with bewilderment. Yes. And back to our mustard seed. Thankfully, that was one of the first plants I researched because what in the world? How is a suburban mom going to figure this out? You know, I don't, I don't have a Bible degree. I don't have a either, but but it, it just takes a lingering and a um, and a prayer. It's just a very prayerful. I approached it in a very prayerful 
way and just would um, lay out all the different places that a word that a plant would be mentioned and just just keep reading over them and just start to see. I mean, God, I think, you know, just made it apparent in my mind how to see these or how to connect them together. How about fig tree? Oh, the fig tree. So that's the first tree that mentioned that we can actually grow, right? Right there, just as they're out of the Garden of Eden, they co- they grab for these the fig leaves to cover themselves up, right? As soon as they ate what they weren't supposed to eat, they realized they were naked and they needed clothes, and they put right. the fig leaves. <laughs> so this is a very and uh, kind of corny almost pun, but it really does speak to the humor and the pun that and the play on words that God has with His Word, which is very surprising but very delightful. And that is that up until they grab the leaves of this tree, all that's talked about is fruit seed-bearing plants to bear fruit, 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 fruit. You can eat from any fruit from the tree, fruit, fruit. God is very interested in fruit and bearing fruit, and we have two weeks of devotions on bearing fruit, and, and this productivity and this fruitfulness is God's biggest deal. <laughs> he loves, he, that's what he wants to see is this fruitfulness, and so as soon as they've stepped away from what he had for them by eating the tree he told them not to, the first thing they do is reach for leaves. Nobody said anything about leaves. <laughs> it wow. works. You know, God is fruitful. He's not leafful. So here <laughs> is this. It's, so it's a fun little play, but it's very important to realize that in a metaphor sense, the productivity is what God is aiming for, and not necessarily the appearance or the covering up or covering over. He wants that productivity, that fruitfulness. And so, but then the fig tree also in, in itself will have two crops of figs, most fig trees. Some varieties uh, are bred, so they only have one. But, but what's fascinating is that there's a spring crop, and they tend to call that the bitter crop, because those fruits in the southern regions when they're grown, those fruits have stayed on all winter. And so you can harvest them in the spring, but then the second crop comes on that, that uh, ripens over the heat of the summer. And in the fall when you harvest those figs, they're very sweet, drippy sweet. Hmm. And so it's sort of this, almost this um, warning that life is going to have bitterness, but if you hang in there through the heat and through the pressure and through that enduring, it will be sweet. Oh, I love that. How about the sycamore tree? An emphasis here on with the O, S-Y-C-O tree, sycamore. Yes. So actually sycamore uh, is another type of fig tree. We really rarely see it over here in North America. It is native to the Holy Land. It's kind of an odd-looking tree. The figs grow right from the trunk or the larger branches of the tree. So it really looks odd. <laughs> it's just the trunk will just be almost covered with these sycamore fig fruits. And um, it was they are almost as sweet, almost as good as the regular common fig, but not quite. And but interestingly it took to get them to to be the right taste and flavor and, and um, enjoyment, you the, right before they're ripe you go and make a little slit at the top of each fruit. And for some reason, that helps it ripen in a sweeter way. And that's what Amos was a fig. He tended sycamore figs. That was one of the things he did. How boring. Yes. <laughs> Go on a fig tree and cut a little slit in every single fruit. Ah! Wow. <laughs> but uh, but it was, it was they, they are 
uh, they're very plentiful on the tree, and so it, it was kind of a lesser fig, and sometimes really even just fed to animals as fodder, and um, but it had more humble um, connotation. Oh, but how- so that kind of goes into Zacchaeus when he's in that sycamore tree. Yes. It's, uh, it's like a background statement about his um, lowliness as far as his, you know, how he chose to live his life, you know, deceiving and violating people's trust and by collecting over an amount of taxes. So it's kind of speaking to his lowliness of his stature. That he was in that particular tree. Yes. Okay. And how about Cedar of Lebanon? Oh, now this is one of the most splendid trees. This is the tallest, biggest, most wonderful tree in Scripture. We actually treated it as a landscape in itself. They are cedars that grew in the mountains of Lebanon, just blanketed forests that are no longer, because this wood was so prized, it went to build ancient palaces and, um, I almost said castles, but palaces and temples. And the temple, it built Solomon's temple and Solomon's palace, but also other palaces around the ancient uh, Near East or Middle East. So hmm. uh, those forests are just about gone now, but this is just a wonderful, true cedar tree. Uh, it's majestic and magnificent and splendor, and it, it lives over a thousand years and it reaches over a hundred feet, and it, the scent is wonderful, and it's just this glorious shelter of a tree. And what's fascinating about them is they, they start off in their young, you know, few, few couple hundred years, <laughs> they start off in our typical Christmas tree shape, that conical, um, you know, typical of a conifer, but then over time it spreads out horizontally. Mm. And so it really speaks, it's a metaphor for, you know, first as we grow up high towards God or, you know, look towards God, but then as we grow in our relationship with Him, we we spread and we offer shelter to those around us. It, it's just a beautiful, magnificent tree. There are some planted all around America, really, in our public gardens. Um, I just wrote a blog about this. So you can find them either in Central Park in New York or the Arnold Arboretum in Boston and places like, oh, there's even some of the L.A. Arboretum. If you get a chance, go see one of these splendid trees. Of course, ours are only a couple hundred years old over here in North America, right? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Huh, that's awesome. How about olive trees? Oh, now this is a, an amazing tree, and it speaks, of course, to peace when you think of the dove coming back with the olive branch, and that is just an iconical symbol of the olive branch is a symbol of peace. That comes from the Bible, but it is really a universal expression today. But it also speaks more than just peace as in absence of war. It speaks to a peaceful life where you're in community and good favor and good prosperity among your family and the families around you. The olive tree is a very prosperous tree because, I mean, it's fruit. You can eat the fruit, of course, eat olives. But then, as I said before, they're pressed out for their olive oil. That was the major source of lamplight in the ancient world. So it brought light into the household. Mm. And then, of course, they're, they're evergreen, so they're providing shade all year round, which is especially important in that uh, region, but the olive oil, you can actually use it on your skin. And in the winter, I started doing this because I'm a weird Bible lady, but, <laughs> but it's very emollient and nourishing to the skin. And 
course, lotions and things like that are common to us today, but if you think back in the time that wind-swept, sun-scorched skin, just the nourishment that that oil brought was very, uh, very precious. And so it really is just talking about the whole prosperity, and in, you can read about that in Psalm 128, that um, that the all, you know, your children will be like olive shoots. The tree lives thousands of years, and it, um, even though it's kind of old and craggly, maybe in the way it's growing, it still will send up new shoots at the base, which if you know, cut those off, really, or you can start new trees with them, but there's just this constant show of life in this tree and vitality, despite its appearance. It's wonderful tree a whole metaphor and book in itself <laughs> it is well how about the cover of your book because i notice is it hyacinth on the cover it is hyacinth on the cover now here you've you've caught us <laughs> the cover of the book is chosen for its soothing um drawing in quality as both in its colors and just um, in its composition, there are not actually hyacinth in the Bible, although, as we said before, most of the bulb plants come from this region because they, you know, store in the bulb during the hot season and then come out in spring or fall. Um, and most of those come out of Turkey area, which is Asia Minor. But, um, but anyway, hyacinths are not named in the Bible, but we put beautiful garden gloves, which... <laughs> <laughs> on the Bible, on the cover with these hyacinths, which your garden gloves, I hope, never look like that because <laughs> I want you to be a real gardener out there. Your tools are not that clean. Your garden gloves are not that clean. My and, pots um, are not that clean either, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but but it's meant to just draw you in, and uh, that's what we hope, that you'll just be drawn in. Hyacinth is such a great spring flower, and and every spring that I see them, I'm always like, oh man, I should have ordered more. Those those and alliums, I'm always kicking myself, why did I not... Why did I not order more of those? Yes, yes. And again, those are, um, uh, you know, speak to that time where there's been a season of nothing, right? This, This cold season of winter. Like I said, in the Mediterranean, it's more the hot season of summer, but then these bulbs spring to life and it just it just nourishes our soul in such beautiful ways. The meaning of hyacinth is sincerity. So, is it? Yeah. Uh-huh. So there you go. It's a very sincere in- endeavor on your part to put this together. <laughs> That's, That's what we're going with. That. This was planned all along, Shelley. <laughs> Very sweet. A divine Thank alignment. You. A divine alignment. <laughs> the 10 weeks that are devoted to garden stories cover everything from weather to pests and pestilence to the harvest of righteousness. And I especially like the week of garden stories that are called Away from the Last Supper. Why did you call it that, by the way? Oh, well, it just entered into this night and this imagining that here is this supper, which is a very precious and important supper. They're actually celebrating Passover together. But imagining that Jesus really knew something that, even though he'd been trying to tell his disciples, they they didn't quite either believe him or catch on that this was his last supper with them. I mean, they, they, he may have told them that. I don't think it really sunk in. So uh, imagine when you know you're, 
it's your last time with someone and they are not understanding that. And so these are just precious, tender. I mean, you want to tell and communicate things that uh, will just, you know, touch and embrace and um, just words of treasure and endearment. And But you know that they don't really know or they can't even really handle what's coming next. So it's just a very tender time. And it was from that mindset. And so some of the things that Jesus passes on to them at this dinner actually happens kind of after dinner or as they're moving away from the Last Supper and on to the Mount of Olives and Garden of Gethsemane, and it will happen later. So just a very, very precious, precious time. In this section... It was this concept of the vine dresser that was in that book that was inspiring to you. Mm-hmm. And you share a poem that's called A Vine Dresser's Creed. Did you write this? I did. Yes, I did. Would you read it? Because I love it. I will. I will. And again, just I'm not even, uh, I'm not brave enough yet. I haven't planted any grapevines. <laughs> so for all those grapevines tenders out there. I applaud you. I'm in awe. But uh, it, is, it is gardening to the next level, the devotion that a vine dresser has for their vines. It's a constant touch and communication and knowing, and it's a, a whole new level. So it's out of awe of this that I wrote this poem. And also, just one other detail is that um, God had his kind of his pet name for Israel all along was that Israel was his vine. And so when Jesus is speaking to them about the vine, that means a lot to them because that's, I mean, I don't know if your father had a nickname or a pet name for you, but he's he's speaking to that precious naming of his people, Israel. And so um, it's very tender and very gentle and very um, just acknowledging that Jesus, and he's Jewish, he's part of that, um, that holiness that God has for his people. So um, in that spirit, here is this poem. Matching species to climate and terrain to vine's need of air circulation, morning's dew must be freed to grow without mildew, disease, or rot. You must be placed thoughtfully, resist it not. The vine is hardy, though needs an eye to detail. A knowing hand pinches back, that its vigor prevails in sweet bursting fruit, not trails of rambling stock. For the vine dresser's pursuit, daily he walks. He knows each branch, each leaf, each grape bunch. He tends them with wisdom, not on a hunch. Intimate knowledge paired with infinite pride in the branches he tends, his love, his bride. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> I can't believe I wrote poetry, and I continue to do it. It's funny to me, but it's very—it's uh, just a wonderful discipline and excitement to to make the verses come out and have that rhyme and meter. It's, it's a wonderful exercise in writing. Well, I love this this uh, particular part of your devotional because I was thinking the entire time of my grapevines, because I do have some. Oh, and, see, you're worthy. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to grow them, right? We'll just leave it at that. But I have uh, student gardeners that help me in my garden. And one year, I had uh, a group of boys. They were hockey players. Great, great mm-hmm. group of guys. 
And I said, hey, I want you to go in the back and all along the fence line, I want you to cut everything down. I want to minimize my spring cleanup next year. I knew we were going to be gone. And I just thought, we'll get a head start. We're going to chop it all to the ground. And when I said that, it didn't occur to me that they would cut the grapevine down because the the it's it's kind of like how you describe the olive tree or if you grow um, oh my gosh honeysuckle uh, you know something that gets really gnarly and a big uh-huh. you know it just grows and grows and grows and it gets it's tough and it, I just didn't it didn't even occur to me that they would cut the grapevine and uh-huh. they did. Uh-huh. And I and this happens all the time. You know, kids are very literal. So if you're giving yeah. instruction to kids, this is what's going to yeah. happen. And it's always a great reminder to me that when I'm giving instruction, I need to be extremely clear. Uh, yeah. You know, and and so in your in our minds, we think we're perfectly clear. You know, when we're asking for help, but clearly we're not (laughs) because I came back there and I saw that my grapevines had literally been cut to the ground and it it just like it was a shock to my body I had worked so hard to get these grapevines to trail along the fence and then up and over an arbor that kind of was meeting a climbing rose and it was just Uh it was the first time it had ever ever made it all the way over the arbor Uh and I was heartbroken and I just thought well Jennifer you asked for help this is what you get yet. And we'll see what happens. You know, we'll see Uh what happens. So this was in the fall. And by spring, we're sitting in church and our pastor's up there and he and his wife had just gone on a trip to Napa Valley. And he starts talking about going through a vineyard with a vintner Mm -hmm. and they're walking through and they're talking about the grapevines. And this grower tells our pastor that every three to five years, they come through and they do a severe prune on the vines. They, they literally do exactly what my student gardeners had, had inadvertently you know, done, which right. is cut them back to the ground. And I'm right. listening to this and I'm going, thank you, thank you, because my vines are going to come back. And wouldn't you know that in that season... They not only grew all the way back to where I had them, but they surpassed it. Oh my That's God. what that and severe pruning had done. And it yes. was such a good reminder to me that, you know, again, it's like that severe pruning. We're having this, you know, kind of full circle moment here, you know, talking yes. about pruning. You know, you can be so fearful of pruning, and yet the benefits that come from it can be so extraordinary. You would never know if you yes. never pruned. So get yes. out there. And, and it just it speaks to the resilience of God's life. I mean, God's life prevails. Yes. There's no question. And if you've you know that because of your grapevines. You've witnessed it. And and I, that's what I love about this whole thing is that these, like, nobody has to convince you, Jennifer. You know, because you've, you've tended and kept and watched and witnessed in your own land. And, and it's, it's just a lesson and a knowing you'll have forever in your heart and in your hands. Yep. And it's there for us. It's magnificent. 
And again, it brings me back to that saying, you have to grow it to know it. You yes. have to grow it. You have to grow it to appreciate those stories on a deeper level. And so that's yes. the other thing I loved about, you know, I've listened to, I think, all the interviews you've done online. I've I've read all, your book. I've read, you know, the blog posts that you've written. And the one thing I admire so much about you is that you actually attempted to grow so many of these plants so that you could understand mm-hmm. what you were writing about. That's so critical. Mm-hmm. Understand and enjoy I mean, just to enjoy it and let it dazzle me. It's fun. (laughs) That's right. The two and a half years it took to write this gardener's Bible was an adventure to be sure. And you thank the Garden Writers Association. How did they support you as a first-time author? Oh, they are a fantastic organization. I, I'm going to recruit you, Jennifer. Okay. <laughs> but they are just a wonderful cultural group of people, very supportive and very uh, generous with their time and their knowledge and their expertise. We have annual conferences. And I got to tell you, I mean, this is just garden writers. It's really for, well, anyone who garden writes, which that has grown over time because now there's blogs and media posts and that sort of thing. But originally it was the columnists in your newspaper or then the magazines, you know, also book authors, but just people that write about gardening, kind of like the sports writers association. This is the garden writers association, but uh, it has just provided a dimension to my work that I didn't even know that I needed, but to connect with other, well, first of all, to be inspired by other writers and to be challenged as they succeed and their expertise and excellence in their work is always a good you know, just it's good to be around that and be encouraged and and be pushed to uh, you know to better better work. But but also just I mean, uh, who knew to be an author you needed to be a photographer? You know, I didn't yes. even know when I started out that you know my interest in growing these plants would lead me to want to photograph them and put them on my blog. So I learned how to photograph from one of our members who always teaches seminars on. He's an excellent photographer and generous with his knowledge to teach us and and certainly I didn't I didn't join Facebook until I finished my manuscript just to keep away from the time distraction but but now social media is such a wonderful benefit to authors and well to anyone you know wanting to promote on a low budget yes (laughs) you're it's just wonderful and so but I knew nothing about it so they taught me all about that they taught me how what to look for in setting up a website and just all kinds of information but more than that it's the stories again back to gardening and stories i just wrote a blog last week on this wonderful product called uh, it's a watering rock well my connection to that product came through garden writers association i didn't know the uh, manufacturers at all but they were uh, you know they reached out to garden writers and that's how i discovered them and other products um Definitely, our my bulb supplier is a member, and they have crown anemones and some of the tulips that are from the Holy Land and and autumn crocus again. So they very knowledgeable, and I go to them for help on that. So it's just been wonderful and story ideas and connections, and uh, it's just been a wonderful support. And also, you just need a group of people to remind you your your weirdness is okay. Yes. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Anytime you're sharing, you know, you have this passion. It's always so great to get with someone who shares your, your mutual yes. passions. Yes, for that's sure. what I mean by weirdness is normal. That's yes. the passion that, you know, makes me uh, look a little odd to people without my passion. It, it definitely is fun to join up with people who have it. So. That's right. Well, who out of curiosity was your
your photo teacher? Was it someone from GWA? Yes, uh, Mark Turner. He's a photographer out of uh, the West Coast, Northern Pacific Northwest, and just does wonderful work, but also a wonderful teacher. And yes, yeah, so. Well, I love the behind-the-scenes stories of book writing, and you also thank your friend Kim in the acknowledgments. And I and just the way you wrote about her, I thought, oh my goodness, these two have had some adventures. And it sounds like she was a special support to you, and that you did some crazy things together as research for your writing. Do you have some stories you can share? Oh, I do. Kim is just wonderful in every way, so patient and so encouraging and and uh, definitely kindred soul garden sister. Um, and just we had more fun. We're uh, literally, the word, you know, again, the word taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, that kind of became this unwritten command that when we would, like I said, try lentils or trying uh, honey or, or we made milk and honey ice cream. <laughs> you know, we, <laughs> we, I would cook a pot of lentil stew and take half of it to her and, and, uh, you know, and she would order, oh, my gosh, she sent me these wonderful kitchen, like, a, you know, wooden spoons but they're for stirring thing, pots in the kitchen, but they're made of olive wood. She ordered them from the from the Holy Land, some company there. And, and uh, I sent her a bay laurel wreath for Christmas. I mean, Aww. so we just had this banter back and forth. And, and you know, um, when we got, it felt like we were hitting a dead end or a dead wall, we'd go, there's a vineyards not too far from us in Grapevine, Texas. We'd walk the vineyards there or go down to our Dallas Arboretum. So just wonderful inspiration and, and would read through. She she was my first read. She would read through and just mark the places that didn't make sense and mark the things that touched her and just wonderful, absolutely wonderful in every way. But uh, definitely, uh, you know, we'd share hyssop seeds and <laughs> back and forth with all this silliness. It was fun. I had to think for a few days about how I wanted this interview to end. What would my last question be? I really thought, I wonder what I should do. And I was giving it some thought. And as I was looking through your book one last time, the bookmark that you sent me fell out. And of course, I happened to look a little closer at it. And it had this quote from Proverbs on it. And it's Proverbs 3116. And it says, out of her earnings, she plants a garden. I know that in the original text, it's a vineyard, but I think it's fine to substitute garden. Is that your favorite verse? Or is there another one? I mold over so you you gave me a heads up that this is uh, you would be interested in my favorite verse and i have to say i can't pick a favorite i tried this morning i was combing the words i can't pick a favorite they're all so wonderful and they apply in different ways at different times but i do love this little verse out of her earnings she plants a vineyard or a garden some translations put it garden some vineyard but either way yeah, the point is that um, she is a very industrious woman. She's a very, obviously, noble woman. She has many pursuits, and she um, she runs her household with dignity and diligence. She cares for her people, not only her family, but the people that work for her or help her to uh, maintain and, and uh, you know, uh, fortify this beautiful household. Uh, but she approaches it with a very common business sense, uh, it's a productive place. It's There's no idleness. I think that's one of her commands. She makes sure nobody's idle, right? They're all working. They're all productive. She is just a blessing in this way of keeping this um, happy household humming. 
And so I just love to think that it's no surprise that she's a gardener. And it just uh, speaks to me about my own mother and grandmother and great-grandmother, and I'm sure those listening can immediately think of the the noble women in their life. The, maybe they're quieter. Maybe they went about their um, their affairs, you know, without a bunch of fanfare, but yet they were diligent and they were prosperous and they were um, they took their duties seriously in the sense that they did them with their best effort. And maybe they didn't have much. Maybe, you know, it was out of small earnings that they could just maybe get this little garden started. And But yet um, it just speaks to that, that care and that um, just that dear place. And then what a holy place it makes that household, that her care and commitment uh, reigns there. And... Um, and so this bookmark was made up for Mother's Day, but, but usually when you find a, uh, especially from the generations older than us, a woman that took such good care of her household and took her household duties, um, treasured them, let me say it that way, uh, it's no surprise that she was also a gardener. I was talking to my cousin, and I just looked up to my aunt so much, her mother, and I, did, I remember her always cooking for us because we go there for Thanksgiving, but I didn't remember that she her garden because by Thanksgiving it was snowed over, you know. Huh, so sure. I I hadn't remembered that she was a gardener. But of course, of course she was. I mean, my my cousin was telling me stories about her garden because, and and I said, well, no surprise. It's no surprise because the way that she loved and cared for us and prepared our Thanksgiving meal is the same kind of love and care and commitment that a, someone approaches a garden with. And so it's no surprise that she would want this garden goodness on her table and vice versa. And, um, so it's just very sweet. And and that's been one of the sweetest things about this book is that almost you're back to the dinner party question. Um, when I start telling someone about the book, they almost immediately think of someone they love who loves gardening. And it's this, it's like this love just comes over their face and their, their excitement. I want to give this to my mother. I want to give this to my aunt. You know, it's just so very precious, so precious. Absolutely. Shelly, you are a frequent speaker at garden clubs. People can have you come and speak at their garden club. And I think you would be a great virtual guest. So if someone has an AV hookup, you know, if they're meeting in a church or a community center, you could do a virtual speaking gig for garden clubs. But you love doing that. That's very life-giving to you, isn't it? It is. I can. You can tell because I go on and on and on. I say to my family, "Are you ready for me to get started?" <laughs> <laughs> but there is just so much here. It's so fun. We could, you know, whether it's looking at Mediterranean plants or looking at bulbs or looking at, you know, the more of them on the metaphor side or just it's just a luscious, rich, wonderful heritage history practical knowledge that is just can be shared in so many ways and I I I I feel humbled and blessed that that appears to be my life charge from here on out is just to you know share and enjoy and spread this wonderful wonderful treasure of things from God's word that relates and blesses our gardening Shelly, I can't thank you enough for our time together. This was really, really fun exploring the gardens, the places, the work, 
the stories of the Bible with you. You made it all come alive and much deeper meaning, too, associated with some of the plants and the stories in the Bible. It was tremendous. Well, thank you. This has just been an out-of-heaven experience. (laughs) I'm so grateful to you and all the work you've done, Jennifer. You've just really paved the way for a beautiful garden community here. Well, thank you, Shelley. I I know we're going to stay in touch. I know you have another book in the works, so I'd love to have you back on the show when that next masterpiece is done. Excellent. It's a date. <laughs> Let, let's keep in touch. Oh, great. Thank you so much. All you right, are Shelley. wonderful. All okay. Right. We'll talk All soon. All right. Take care. All right. Bye, bye. Well, that's it for the show today. I want to thank Shelly Cram for being my guest. She was just absolutely lovely, wasn't she? Well, I want to thank my team at Podfly Productions, David Myers, Ayn Kadena, and David Gregerson. And just a reminder that I'll have all the generous information that Shelly shared today on the show on my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And that's also the home of the Still Growing Podcast. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.